Hey, this is Dr. Rob. Welcome to Biblical Genetics. I'm coming to you today from an undisclosed location. It's actually a place where I did not expect to be. I had my whole day planned out. I was going to go to the Chief Van House, which is an interesting location from a historical perspective because it's a place where there was a Moravian mission to the Native Americans who were slaveholders before the Trail of Tears got started and the European-derived peoples kicked out all the Native Americans from Georgia and sent them west to Oklahoma and made them walk. It's a very sad period of American history, a travesty of justice, but this class of cultures was going to work out one way or the other and the dominant culture at the time won and they won in a very brutal fashion, making those people walk. Many of those people died along the way. But interestingly, this group of European-derived peoples, they were Slavic peoples. The Moravians are from the Eastern Czech Republic. But after the Protestant Reformation, the Thirty Years' War, these people spread out and fled and went all these different places in the world using missionary tactics. And so they filled up Africa with their missions and South America with their missions. And one of them was in north-central Georgia to the Cherokee Indians. And these Moravian people came here and served them. They set up schools, they gave them health care, they taught them to read and write. In fact, some of, some of them were very well educated. But then the other Europeans decided to kick them out and away they went. You know, the more I learn about history, the more I realize it's very complicated and it's not simple. And we tend to say, oh, the horrible Europeans suppressed the Native Americans. But not in this case. Well, in one case, the big group did. But the smaller group, they were trying hard to educate them and trying to build them up so they could work in this complicated modern world that their culture had not yet faced. And they were succeeding, and they would have succeeded. And hopefully, can't know because history changed, but hopefully over time, the light of Christ would have shown into their lives to the point where they rejected slavery also. William Wilberforce almost single-handedly got rid of slavery in the entire British Empire around the same time frame that Native Americans, some of them, were adopting slavery as a practice for themselves. You know, history is really complicated, and the more we learn about history, the more we realize that we don't know very much. And around every corner are surprises. And so as we dig and as we learn, we reject a lot of the earlier tropes and simplified ideas that we had, realizing that, yeah, okay, when I first started learning, I had to have a framework, but the framework was, was a pretty bad framework. And that's usually true in a lot of areas of human history. We are rather myopic today, taking very simplified views of very complicated scenarios. The same is true in science. A lot of the things that I once held dear, I no longer believe. And that is the subject of today's episode on Biblical Genetics, Things I No Longer Believe. Now, some of these are going to be a little bit of a rhetorical trap, because it's not really something I believed, but it was a guiding principle in biology that people don't believe anymore, but I was certainly taught it in college. Hey, I want to start off just by thanking my supporters on Patreon, on buymeacoffee.com. You people have propelled me into a brand new year. In fact, um, all of you people who are not supporters, thank you much for just watching and just listening. God bless you. You don't have to do anything except be exposed to the information I'm trying to produce. But the other people are encouraging me to continue to make content for you. In fact, I just had a 
my largest donation ever on buymeacoffee.com. Thank you, sir. Uh, that was a surprise. I did not expect it. Um, and that is, is just encouraging me to get out and do more. This is why I came out on a rainy day and why I went two hours from home and then another hour in another direction and then finally came to this third location to film this episode because of that encouragement. Now, of course, the one thing I no longer believe, if any of you know me at all, if you've read my bio online, I no longer believe in Darwinian evolution. I certainly believe that things change over time. I did a whole entire four-part video series on biblical genetics on that. I did a three-part article series on creation.com. Species were designed to change. Okay, that, that's granted. Things change. But I do not believe that that change is sufficient to explain where everything came from. I do not believe you can use natural selection, genetic drift, and things like that to explain the common ancestry of all species. But that was not something I came about instantaneously. It's not where I started in life. In fact, I believed evolution growing up. I didn't know anyone who didn't believe evolution, or if they did, they never talked about it with me. Evolution just was. It was just there. It was just accepted. It wasn't questioned. It wasn't argued about. And in my freshman year of college, I remember this one professor that I had, I had him several times um, over the four years of college, but in uh, biology 1001, that's biology for biology majors, science majors, engineers, and things like that at Georgia Tech. There's like 300 students in this auditorium. And once every semester that I took this professor, I think I had him like three times, he would stop in the middle of his lecture. I don't even know what he was talking about. And he'd just look at the audience and hold out his hand and he'd say, let's face it, evolution's a fact. And what did I do at 18, 19 years old? I didn't know anything at 18. I had an adult brain. I thought I was really smart, but I did not have the experience that that man had. In fact, I'm probably about his age now than that he was then. He had decades over me. He knew what to say, how to say it, why things are said, what not to say, what, what ways to go down to convince students that evolution is true. And he ignored all the stuff that now I know was problematic for evolution. But back then, I didn't know any different. And so, I accepted evolution and I remember a couple months later being in a conversation with someone and saying, let's face it, evolution's a fact. Just parroting what I had heard a couple of months before. But I wanted that certainty. I needed that certainty. I craved this absolute belief in evolution because I wanted an absolute belief in something. Now, to that professor's horror, if he knew me now, um, he'll know that I did not go down the road that he went down because I turned away from materialistic, naturalistic, uh, humanist evolution and went towards Christianity. And in Christ, in the Bible, with a belief in God, I rejected the purely naturalistic underpinnings of evolutionary theory and ended up where I am now. And I remember early on all the arguments that people were having. Is evolution true or not? Here's facts and, and figures and things that evolution can or cannot explain. I, I spent a long time doing that, and it took me, I don't know, 10 or more years, probably longer than that, before I realized the philosophical underpinning of the argument. Yeah, science is based on philosophy. You must understand that. I mean, I have a PhD. That stands for a doctorate in philosophy. But the philosophy that I was trained under is called naturalism. It is the philosophy that underpinned all of my scientific training. As, is, as I've explained in other biblical genetics episodes and several of my articles online, naturalism is a wonderful science for the laboratory. We approach 
laboratory science as if there's no outside interference. But naturalism, it turns out, is a lousy explanation for origins. That's how I can feel perfectly comfortable being a scientist and rejoicing in all the nerdiness that a, scient a scientist pursues. I mean, I love learning stuff. But that doesn't mean that I believe the stuff came about through the laws of natural science. You see, evolution runs into a wall of improbability. The evolutionist thinks they can overcome that by appealing to billions of years. Because, you know, if you have enough time, even the most remotely possible thing will eventually happen. But no, the numbers still are not in their favor. They could have a gazillion years and there are certain chemical reactions that are not going to bring about a living thing. And even if that living thing did spontaneously appear in a soup of random chaos, random chaos is going to overwhelm it. Life is not going to come from non-life. I did an entire episode about that on biblical genetics. So like many of my biblical creationist colleagues at Creation Ministries International and other organizations that I'm aware of, that I'm part of, like the Creation Research Society, I was once an evolutionist. If you are now an evolutionist, you know what? You got some more thinking to do. Or if you're wondering about whether evolution is true, creation is true, take a step back and look at the philosophical underpinnings behind it. It is strongly philosophical. I mean, evolution really is a scientific philosophy. It is couched on the philosophy of naturalism, and it is utterly dependent upon the philosophy of materialism. And throw in some humanism on top of that, as if man is the arbiter of his own understanding, like we can really understand anything. Uh, humanism focuses on mankind as an autonomous, self-existing, rational being. That's funny because a lot of hardcore evolutionists understand that that's not true in an evolutionary world. They might think that the reason you believe anything or the reason you react in any way to anything is because you inherited genes from your fish or monkey ancestors that helped them have babies. And by reacting that way, that improved their reproductive output, and therefore we're just a product of reproductive output. And our thoughts are not necessarily rational, they're just a survival advantage. So if I believe in God, it's because I have a defective mutation from my ancestors causing me to believe in God. In one sense, there are some people that would reduce human existence to that level. Most would not, but some certainly do. Humanism can't handle that. So you can't have 100% you know, pure hardcore evolution reductionism and humanism at the same time because we become nothing but a machine in the, in the evolutionary model. Naturalism can be defined as a belief that all of the physical phenomena and events in all of the universe's history can be explained using nothing but the laws of science. That doesn't mean that there's no God, but it does mean that you don't need a God, in lowercase g in scare quotes, to explain anything that's ever happened. Now, I'm a theist. I am not a naturalist. I believe in God. Therefore, God can interfere with his universe in any way he sees fit. That does complicate the scientific process a little bit, except I believe that my God, who's a constant uh, law-giving God, created the universe, and therefore that's why the universe operates according to law, because it came out of the mind of a lawgiver. So God is not capricious, therefore the universe is not capricious, and that's why naturalism works in a laboratory. Now, materialism is a belief that nothing exists except the material world and the laws that govern it. 
that is definitely not a Christian idea. In Christianity, in fact, in any religious uh, setting, there is another plane. There's a spiritual dimension. There's a higher level. You know, call it what you will. Materialism doesn't work in a religious scenario, and it certainly doesn't work in a Christian scenario. So, I am not a naturalist. I'm not a materialist. I'm not a humanist. But I'm still a scientist. I can still apply the laws of logic to what we can know today. And those laws and those thoughts and the discoveries that we're making of the technology of the cell tell us that evolution is not ever going to happen. So all those things together are why I reject evolution. One, I'm a Christian. Two, I believe the Bible. Three, the laws of science say that evolution is not going to happen that way. But that doesn't mean things can't change. They do change, and they change a lot because God created things to be adaptable and changeable. Now, after considering all those reasons, that is why they cannot allow a divine foot in the door, if I can use a quote from Richard Lewontin. They cannot tolerate any deviation from strict materialistic naturalism because once you open up that door, Pandora's box opens up and anything is possible. If there's any outside forces in the universe, you can't say how much influence that outside force has. You could have a God who just kicked off the universe in a Big Bang-like scenario, or you could have a biblical God who created the entire universe by fiat just a few thousand years ago. This is why theism is resisted so strongly in the halls of science. But I am a Christian, therefore Christ reigns in my heart. Christ is called the Creator in the Bible. Read John chapter 1 if you want to really know that the, Jesus is absolutely the Creator of the universe. And therefore, naturalism isn't true. Alright, so that was a long, rambling explanation of why I no longer believe evolution. I've talked about this before. Uh, one of my favorite videos I ever did up in the uh, mountains on the Appalachian Trail. I just sat down on a rock and talked for uh, nearly half an hour on that subject. But there are other things I no longer believe. Let me give you a couple of examples of something that I never really believed, but people before me did, to show you where I'm going with this. Back before DNA was discovered to be the carrier of the information, we had this thing called genetics, but genetics wasn't DNA-based. They talked about genes, but a gene was just an inheritable unit, something that did something that caused something to be taller, shorter, purple, or green, or spiky, or smooth, or whatever it was. It was just a gene. We didn't know the mechanical basis behind it. And back, I think it was the 1940s, Beadle and Tatum came up with this idea called the one gene, one enzyme hypothesis. That is, if you have a gene, which we now know to be a piece of DNA, but back then they thought it was probably protein-based, if you had a gene, that gene does something in the cell. That made it very easy for evolution because natural selection then has an easy thing to focus on. You have a unit of an operable unit, something that does something, and it's either good or bad, depending on the context of life for that organism. So natural selection can attack it or, or increase it, depending upon whether it's beneficial or not to the organism. Well, we don't believe that anymore. First of all, in the 1960s, definitely 1970s, we realized that units of inheritance, now with our DNA base, were much larger than the three letters per amino acid required to make each protein, in higher organisms anyway. We have things called introns. These are intervening spaces in the gene that have to be cut out and tossed away. And then the exons, the pieces of the, of the protein that code for protein, have to be joined together. And then a decade or two after that, we start unraveling what's called the splicing code. 
And I did an entire episode about this also. There is something in the cell that takes all these exons and moves them around. And you can have an exon that's in one genetic transcript that's used in this protein, sure, but in another protein, and another protein, and in another protein, and those proteins have nothing to do with one another. Biochemically, they're totally unrelated. So the one gene, one enzyme hypothesis is not true. It's true for bacteria only. Once you get more complicated than bacteria, you have the shuffling program where one gene can have multiple effects in multiple cell types under multiple conditions because it is spliced into multiple different enzymes. Now, speaking of enzymes, that brings up something else I no longer believe. I no longer believe that bacteria are simple. There is a, a strain of thought and it permeates, I mean, your high school textbooks, your college textbooks, your, the things you do in your laboratories. It's just this thought that bacteria are easy. They're simple. They're certainly not as complicated as humans, but biochemically, they are just as complicated as humans. Bacteria do things that we cannot do in a laboratory. We cannot do in a factory. We can't do anything. We look into this bacteria doing this, this marvel of engineering on the biochemical level. It's like, what on earth? How does it do that? Bacteria, they're able to do some chemical reactions that if you just mix the components together in a test tube and let it sit on the lab shelf, it would take a billion years for that reaction to go to completion, but they can do it in a thousandth of a second using enzymes. Enzymes that are highly tailored to do one specific thing. Enzymes that are like molecular scissors that can take an atom and add it to a large molecule. Enzymes that are required for life. Without that enzyme, bacteria can't live. So how did that bacteria come to exist in the first place and where did that enzyme ever come from? If you have a chemical reaction that's never going to happen in the whole history of the world, why would anything anticipate making an enzyme that's going to be able to do that chemical reaction? It'll be completely worthless. And once you start making that thing, well, that thing is no good because it's an improbable molecule. Life would be like, oh, I have this improbable molecule. Let's figure out what to do with it. No, it would just be making a toxin that's going to build up in the cell and then the cell's just going to die. So bacteria, not simple. There's something else I no longer believe. And this is more something that I actually did believe. I no longer believe in Linnaean taxonomy. Now, Carl Linnaeus was a good Christian man. He came up with this wonderful scheme of how to describe all living things and categorize them. And he, had, um, he divided living things up into categories. He had the kingdom, the phylum, the class, the order, the family, the genus, and the species. And he assigned everything two Latin names. So we are Homo sapiens, that is man who thinks, thinking man, if you want. Um, that's our species de designation. Canis familiaris is the domestic dog. The thing with Linnaean taxonomy is uh, he didn't know what we know today. And there is no level in that kingdom family, class order family, genus species system that actually works. I mean, from the bottom level, we don't know what a species is. Species morph, species ebb, species flow, they merge, they split, they change over time. What's a species? There's tons of definitions, but none of them really do justice to this vague notion we have of what we think a species is supposed to be. There's not really a good definition of species. We know uh, hybridization events happen between species in the same genera, between species in, in the same family, and they're not always sterile. Uh, we have successful hybridization events between things that aren't supposed to hybridize. 
because there's not really a definition of the word species. We have, in the biblical sense, a created kind, an interdependent, co-mingling group of organisms that we can divide up into species if they look a certain specific way, but that's the best we can do for that definition. But even at the top level, people were just um, pulling DNA out of the environment and they came up with these, these DNA strands like, what is this? This doesn't fit anything we know. They, wow, they live on our skin, they live everywhere, but they're usually called the extremophiles. These are the things that live in boiling hot acid lakes or the, the hot smokers in the bottom of the ocean. Uh, they live in deep mud. They're, they're more common than you might think, but they also live in extreme environments. When they were first discovered, it was trumpeted that these things are intermediate between bacteria and higher organisms because they share things. They're more similar to people than to E. coli, even though they're single-celled little bacteria-like cells. Genetically, they're more similar to us than to a lot of other microorganisms. But they are not intermediate. They are on their own branch, their own long branch. They are different. So taxonomists had to come up with another idea. And now we have the domain. And then we have kingdoms. And then we have phyla. But we also have subphyla. And we have infraorders. And we have subclasses. And we have all these different levels because there's not really a set level. When I was in grad school, uh, my roommate, my, my, uh, someone who was going through school with me first year, he... Came, uh, hit me with a new idea that I hadn't thought of before. And I loved this idea and I adopted it. I said, yeah, this is great. Throw out like Linnaean taxonomy, simply call things what they are. So if you want to talk about the bony fish, you say those are the teleos, the bony fish. It doesn't matter really where that is, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Now we have a, you know, we kind of keep it in the right spot, but get rid of all the other designation. This is just the bony fish. And if you know what the definition of a bony fish is, then all the organisms that are bony fish fit under that. Now within that, we have the ray-finned fishes. That is the fish will have spines in their, uh, their fins. And we have the lobe-finned fishes like the coelacanth and the, uh, uh, the lungfish. So we can split the teleos, a bony fish, into the lobe-finned fish and the ray-spined fishes. Fine, but that's not an appeal to a Linnaean taxonomical system. Genetics has changed everything. All the taxonomy that I learned in college, I had to throw out. In fact, I just did a very deep dive into taxonomy. I'm writing a book called Biblical Biology 101. In the middle section of the book, I'm trying to describe all the different types of life out there. And so I had to get into taxonomy and I had to relearn everything. It's all been changed and it's still changing and they're still arguing and all the, I mean, people have spent over a hundred years measuring organisms, measuring their bones and, and, and uh, looking at their shapes and their characteristics and grouping things according to that. And all that's been thrown out because of genetics. I think that's kind of funny that all of it was essentially wrong. So throw it all up in the air, let it land where it may. And what happens is an incredibly complex tree of life. Now I say that not as in an ancestral tree, but just as a descriptive model, a tree of life, where we have different branches on the tree representing the different groups of organisms. It's incredibly complicated. There are so many places where a branch comes in and it's not at the kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species levels. It's somewhere in between. So really there is no more Linnaean taxonomy. There's something else that Linnaeus had no idea of and that's embryology. As the embryo was developing, 
um, it's going to form a ball of cells, the animal embryo. And then one place is going to poke in to make a mouth. Now, if it doesn't poke all the way through to the bottom and just makes a cup shape, that is a coral or a jellyfish or a hydra. They only have one opening, so anything that doesn't get digested has to come back out the mouth. The eggs and sperm have to come out the mouth because they don't have any other opening in their body. But one step up, you're talking about starfish, sea urchins, things like that. They have a flow-through digestive tract. And so after that ball of cells is made, um, one part will poke in. I'm not trying not to use any big words. I'm stumbling a little bit because the big words are the tip of my tongue and I don't want to say them. But the, the ball of cells will poke in and go all the way through to the other side. And now we have a hole going all the way through the ball of cells. But there's a big difference in the animal world. The things like sea urchins, the mouth forms first. That poke is the mouth and it goes through and makes the anus. But higher organisms like people, the anus forms first and it pokes through the form of the mouth. So don't shoot the messenger, human. I just told you that you're made, yeah, in that direction. That's just the way it is. The thing is, there are some, the organisms in the first class are called protostomes. Okay, I use a big word. First, proto, the mouth. We are deuterostomes. Second, the mouth. So the protostomes, the first thing that pops in is the mouth, but some protostomes go the other direction. And in the deuterostome world, there's no clear place where you say, okay, all these things below this level are deuterostomes. That, that, that way of development pops up in several different places on the tree. And so 10 years ago, I was like, ah, oh, Linnaeus didn't even know about protostomes and deuterostomes. And today I'm like, yeah, today I can't even define it. So all I'm saying is the taxonomy is really complicated. God did not create a simple system, and our attempts to make it simple were, in fact, wrong. So I could talk a long time on what I no longer believe. The first big one, of course, is evolution. Throw in the materialism, naturalism, maybe a little hint of humanism in there. I don't go there anymore. But I also no longer believe that bacteria are simple. I no longer believe in Linnaean taxonomy. Oh, one more thing. Now, I wasn't sure if I ever believed this, but regarding the development of the embryo. I remember that professor I mentioned earlier, he would hammer us ontogeny, recapitulates phylogeny. That means that the development of the embryo restates evolutionary history, as in the embryo goes through a little fish stage where we have gills. That's not true. There are never gills in the embryo. Those like a triple chin has nothing to do with respiration, and those things never develop into parts of the, the respiratory tract. Um, there's a point in development of the embryo where we're told that we have a tail. That's not true. The embryo, the human embryo, never has a tail. Those bones are still there in the adult. They're right at the tip of your, of your rear end, the end of your spine, called the cossacks. It looks like a tail because the first thing the embryo has to do is develop the spinal cord. Legs are not necessary early in development, but the nervous system is. So proportionally, the backbone grows first and grows large and the legs are still little. So the, the cossack sticks back past the end of the, of the legs. But then the legs grow and those bones are still there. It's not a tail. We never have a tail. That is an evolutionary fable. And I remember when I learned that within 10 years of Ernst Haeckel in the 1800s promoting that theory, we know it was wrong. And yet I was still being taught that adamantly in the 1980s, late 1980s, at a technical university, something that had been disproven 100 years before. Hopefully, you're not being taught that today. 
But if you are, leave me a comment and tell me because I, I would like to know. There is, it is shocking how an older generation believes something that's not true and they hold on to it. It's even more shocking when the younger generation doesn't realize that the older people were believing something that's not true. It's even more and more shocking, but not really at this point, that the younger generation cannot yet identify in their minds what's not true. They think they know stuff, but much of what they think they know is going to turn out to be false. And I know that from experience. I remember being there. I remember unlearning so much of what I thought I knew. It's been a long process. I am not the person I was when I was younger. And hopefully when you are older, you're not going to be the person that you were when you were younger. And if you are older, hopefully you're not the same person you used to be. Because the development of the mind, the exposure to information changes us and our ideas. I want to leave you with a verse. 2 Corinthians, a book that we don't read very often. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. My friends, this world has a spiritual dimension to it. Right now we see as but through a glass darkly. In another uh, phrase from Paul from the old King James Version, we do not see clearly the heavenly realm, but one day we will. So that was a park ranger who just came up and told me that the park is closed. So my day of trying to find a location to film has just ended. This is my first video of 2023. Can't wait to see what's coming up. I thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. If you're not a supporter or a donor to Biblical Genetics, that's fine. I'm not asking you to be. But I do want you to be exposed to another way of thinking. And I want you to be encouraged that there is a spiritual dimension to existence. And if there is a spiritual dimension, that means there is a divine foot in the door. And that divine foot, in my way of understanding, in my belief, is the God of the Bible. It is Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, who's reaching out to you to ask you if you're going to believe in him. 